Welcome to episode 22 of the Fire Safety Matters podcast, where we bring you the latest news, views and opinion from across the UK's dedicated fire industry. My name's Brian Sims, and I'm the editor of Fire Safety Matters magazine. We're delighted that this podcast is sponsored by the Fire Safety Event, which runs at the NEC in Birmingham on the 5th, 6th and 7th of April 2022. To register for the show, visit www.firesafetyevent.com. As always, I'm joined on the Fire Safety Matters podcast by my colleague Mark Sennett, the CEO at Western Business Media. Good morning, Mark. How are things with you at the moment? Yeah, Brian, I'm great. As you said, apart from the knee, I've somehow managed to damage the back of my knee uh, during a gym, which will find it even more funny to people that know me. That's where I did it. So, yeah, limping around a little. But I tell you what is actually making me feel in an even better mood is the fact that this podcast was nominated once again for Podcast of the Year. So congratulations to you. You've done a great job on this. And, you know, as a CEO of Western Business Media, I'm phenomenally proud to see the FSM podcast shortlisted for Podcast of the Year at the PPA Independent Publishers Awards. Up against a quality competition, but we managed to get seven nominations for our whole company, um, and we only ended eight categories. So, you know, that's tremendous recognition for the great work that you and your colleagues do. So congratulations to you, Brian. Thank you very much, Mark. It's, uh, it's a great honour, I think, for the magazine and the effort we've put in, I guess, over the last two years, pretty much since lockdown started, really. Absolutely. You know, the magazine, Fire Safety Matters, is up for Business uh, Magazine of the Year and also Media Brand of the Year at the same awards. And that's a testament to the great editorial that you've done, but also the great support we've had from clients and the big readership growth. So thank you to all of you that are listening to this for supporting the podcast that have allowed us to uh, get shortlisted for these honours. We, we greatly appreciate it. But as always, you know, we will start off with the news. So... If you want to get regular news to do with Fire Safety Matters, just go to our website, www.fsmatters.com. You can see all the latest news, views, prosecutions, products and services on there, along with feature articles, all of our back archive of digital versions of our magazines. You can see how to get through to this podcast as well through there as well. How you can access our digital conference, which takes place on the 3rd of November, Fire Safety Matters Live. And if you listen to this after the fact, don't worry, you can watch it on demand. So that is your place to go and you can register up for our weekly newsletter that goes to over 54,000 people, or you can register to get the magazine, Fire Safety Matters, for free. So it's definitely the place to go. But we talked about news, and we start off with news, Brian, and I think you're going to start off with a pretty well-known but pretty sombre story for us. Yes, indeed, Mark. It's a very, very sad story. This one's been in the in the major national news, of course. The Fire Sector Federation has paid tribute to Sir David Amis, MP, chair of the all-party parliamentary group of fire safety and rescue, who was stabbed multiple times on Friday the 15th of October while holding a constituency surgery in Leon C. Now, tragically, Amis, who had served diligently as a Conservative Member of Parliament for South End West from May 1997, passed away at the scene. In a statement issued on the organisation's website, the Fire Sector Federation observes, and I quote, it's with profound regret that the chairman announces a sudden and tragic loss of Sir David Amos MP. Sir David fell victim to a fatal knife attack in his constituency at South End West in Essex. Many Federation members were recalled from our parliamentary event meetings and listening to Sir David, that he was a great supporter of the improvement of fire safety in the UK. His presence and advocacy in many debates through meetings and correspondence with parliamentary ministers and his colleagues in both houses of parliament was quite frankly unlimited. Our thoughts go to his family and friends at this very distressing time. 
Born in 1952, Mark, Amos had served as the MP for Basildon from June 1983 right through until April 1997. Previously, he studied economics and government at Bournemouth University. He was elected as Conservative councillor for Redbridge in 1982 and as the Conservative MP for Basildon in 1983. When in government, Amos's highest position was as Parliamentary Private Secretary to Michael Portillo. That was for a period of around 12 years. He was particularly prominent as a backbencher, serving on many parliamentary select committees and sponsoring several pieces of vital legislation. Now, the team members at Fire Safety Matters send our sincerest condolences and sympathies to the family, friends and colleagues of Sir David Amos MP. who will be greatly missed, Mark. The Fire Sector Federation has also opened a book of condolence such that people can pay their respects to and also share their memories of David Amos. The book can be accessed online and here's the link. It's www tolbc.com forward slash Sir David Amos. Yeah, it's just a truly awful story. Um, it's really, really sad. You know, I had the pleasure of meeting uh, David Amos at a industry do. You know, obviously he's known within the fire sector for the good work he's done there, but he also went to the opening of Vimpex Manufacturing Southend of their new manufacturing facility, their new factory down there. This is a few years back now. It's about three years ago. And he's their local MP. And he came and he addressed a number of us that were there to look at the fantastic facility that James Jones and his family have got down there. And he was brilliant. You know, he he, he, he was funny, witty, engaged. Um, you know, was proud to have a good business like Vimpex doing good work on his doorstep. And couldn't have been more passionate about the fire sector or or the company that he was visiting. He was a brilliant local MP, cared passionately about lots of major issues, particularly local issues, and and he was a thoroughly nice man. And in the one time that I that I met him, and that I remember him very very well. And when I saw the dreadful news, I thought back to that day, and you know couldn't quite believe what I was reading. And I spoke to James Jones just the other day, um, who's the managing director of Impex, when we were over at FIM Expo, the FIA's um, conference over in Belfast in October, and we were reminiscing about that day as well. And uh, it's just, it's awful. It's truly sad. But I suspect the one lasting memory that um, will be done to remember him, I suspect that Southend will probably end up getting the city status that he so much wants for Southend to get in his memory. What a fantastic backbench MP, a man that dedicated his life to public service and, and you know, did impact the fire sector. So, yeah, I echo your words and the Fire Sector Federation's words. Um, just a tragic story, Brian. Really, really sad. But uh, and our thoughts go out to, to, to him and his family. So we're going to move on to our next story now, Brian. And this next story, um, you know... We, you know how we like to talk about fire brigade unions and everything here. We, we always talk about firefighters as and when we can. So you did a story for us just recently that said firefighters may not be able to tackle all fires, warns the fire brigade union. So firefighter numbers have, according to the fire brigade union, now reached a new record low since the beginning of austerity in 2010. One in five firefighter roles that existed in 2010 are no longer in place, with a fall in the number of 11,680 roles in that ensuing period. 
So these figures were obtained by the FBU under a Freedom of Information request and released just prior to the Home Secretary Priti Patel's speech at the Conservative Party's annual conference, which was held in Manchester back on the 3rd to 6th of October. So since 2010, more than 8,000 whole-time firefighters have left the fire National Service across the nation. London alone now has 1,112 less firefighters than it did in 2010, with a drop-off in numbers of 615 in West Yorkshire, 631 in Greater Manchester, 551 in Devon and Somerset, and 470 drop in the West Midlands. Other top-line figures unearthed by the Freedom of Information request include a cut of 70 firefighters between 2020 and 2021 in Hampshire and 49 in Devon and Somerset. So the overall figure compared to last year for the UK is a loss of 185 firefighters. That represents a 0.4% decrease. So quite startling statistics. Um, I think it's very easy obviously, to talk about austerity being a key thing about this um I, th I always try and like to look on the positives of things as well there's never positives you'd think of people losing their jobs especially in a frontline service brian but you know the, the number of fire fatalities is way down fire safety is drastically improved in this country um there are less incidents than there were before so there are positives to um uh, to, to statistics like that of, of how our country is evolving to do with fire safety that does not mean we're immune to major tragedies as we have definitely found out through Grenfell Tower and a lot of learnings can be had and we're in a period where we've got two major pieces of legislation coming through the building safety bill and obviously the fire safety bill that's that's now been enshrined into law it's a really interesting period um, in history for the fire safety sector at the moment certainly legislatively so there's lots of good stuff going on as well, um, but we are in a mess as a country uh, economically. The whole world is. That cannot be denied. This is the worst recession in living memory on the back of a pandemic that we are not out of the back of. I could certainly understand and would expect nothing less than the Fire Brigade Union to be very, very concerned about this. And it's one of those public services you don't really recognise it until you need it or it's gone they provide such an important role i am a big believer that prevention is a big part of the cure so we need to do as much as we can to make buildings safer so we don't ever need firefighters to come out but we'll always need firefighters for the simple reason they save lives in situations of emergency so yes i am concerned by the numbers going down but what this report doesn't take into account is what response times alike and also you know how many incidents they're having to um attend is this just the government actually um trying to get the public purse to work harder and more efficiently and has it worked that's the question obviously the fbu will say no brian and i completely respect their right to say that but this is really only one side of the statistics so i think i'll hold judgment other than raising concern like they do that the trend is firefighter jobs are going down but i i'd push it back you know the statistics we've seen is that there are less incidents um to respond to and that the fire brigades are doing a fantastic job of, of still getting quality <laughs> response times so i'm gonna sit on the fence i've spent at my backside brian on this one and say that um yeah, I mean, there's two sides to both arguments, but it's certainly a fantastically interesting story that you've got. Is there anything else you want to add to it? 
Yes, well, coming back to something you just said, actually, Mark, you mentioned the stats there. The latest figures have actually just been published on the Home Office website, so I direct our readers to there to see those. It's worth seeing. And obviously, as you mentioned there, the FBU has been quite forthcoming in its comments about this story. Matt Rack, who many of our readers will know, is General Secretary of the Fire Brigades Union, has explained, and I quote, after years of huge government cuts and staffing levels falling, there's now a very real threat that fire and rescue services may not be able to deal with every incident and fight all fires. For example, we've heard senior fire and rescue services managers state that the public should lower their expectations that large wildfires can be tackled. The cuts are weakening the day-to-day work of fire and rescue services in every single area. They're making people less safe. They also pose a threat to the ability to respond to large-scale incidents, and particularly so if more than one such incident were to occur at the same time. Further, Matt Rack has noted, and again I quote, Households deserve to feel protected. We all want to be able to walk past fire stations and know that there are enough people in there to protect us all. Firefighters also do whatever they can to save lives at all times. It's time the government did the same. So pretty strong words there, Mark. But the freedom of information requests were made for this study between April and September of this year and represent provisional headcount figures as of 31st of March of each year. Interestingly, Northamptonshire Fire and Rescue Service didn't provide 2021 figures and hence its 2020 figures have been constant. Yeah, really interesting story, Brian. I'm glad we got a chance to go over it. So it's at this time that we normally introduce our first recurring guest. So over to you, Brian, to tell us who we're going to chat to now. When talk turns towards all matters legal in relation to fire safety, there's no better expert to reference and learn from than our regular Fire Safety Matters podcast contributor Warren Spencer, the Managing Director at Blackhurst Bud Solicitors. In point of fact, Warren has now prosecuted more cases under the Fire Safety Order than anyone else. The list of such cases with which he has been involved now stretches to over 200. On this episode of the Fire Safety Matters podcast, and as always in conversation with Mark, Warren focuses his attentions on the issue of culpability in relation to fire safety related prosecutions. Morning, Warren. How are you? I'm fine, thank you, Mark. And yourself? Yeah, good. Great to see you. I mean, we talk about prosecutions a lot. Well, it's your game, obviously, <laughs> Warren being both uh, both both defends and prosecutes. But what I said to you off air on is often you see a situation where similar cases come to court at the same time. And you were telling me earlier about a particular couple of cases you recently prosecuted where it's come back as the culpability of the people responsible was lower and they were both quite interesting and similar so can you fill us in a bit more on that please yes the, the these are two cases uh, which are very common types of cases and, 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 a, and a number of my prosecutions have been in relation to uh, ground floor takeaways and living accommodation on first and second floors and the, the, these two cases are very similar in in those regards um and in, in one of them for example, I, I was before a judge who, who was looking at culpability and the risk of harm is always high because there's always the risk of death or serious injury. But culpability can be between high and medium. And one of the cases, uh, there was a fire and a tenant escaped by using a, a gutter attached to a wall and trying to, to shimmy down the, the gutter. The gutter came away from the wall um, and, and resulted in life-changing injuries for the tenant. Um, so a very serious case. And when it came to culpability, the judge says, what do you say, Mr Spencer, about? Is it high or medium? Uh, and, the, and the thing here is that high 
is where there's kind of a blatant disregard for fire safety from um, a, a person responsible for premises. And mediums where um, that person should have known better uh, and that the premises were in a situa- were in a, a state where similar premises should have been much better. Um, and the judge would say, what should there have been in place here? And in both cases, uh, the judge came to the conclusion that culpability was medium and not high because the um, tenants who were letting the premises out, they were leaseholders letting the premises out, subleasing again, um, were foreign nationals, both of them, and both from, you might say, countries where health and safety regulations were not paramount in people's minds, I don't put it very delicately, but um, the judge basically said it was apparent from their interviews that they had no idea about fire safety regulations. Therefore, this is not a case where they, they knew they should do better but chose not to um, and therefore put profit ahead of risking people's lives. This is a case where they simply didn't know any better and therefore culpability was medium instead of high. Yeah, it's 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 truly scary thought, though, isn't it? And, and it's what we talk about a lot on here that uh, just because somebody doesn't know or should know better, that you know the culpability is is lower. And I find it really interesting you telling me to have two foreign nationals in two separate cases, given basically that the same verdict by the judge of the culpability was lower simply because they didn't know better. And you know, I know this is something that we're going to talk about risk assessment at a greater level down the line. We're about to announce uh, a digital conference for February in the coming weeks, uh, which talk about risk assessing the risk assessor. So keep your eyes peeled for everybody uh, on that. And we'll give more information on the next episode of the podcast because we'll definitely want you guys to try and attend that. But is this something that, that worries you, Warren, at this point? Are we seeing an increase in people giving a lower culpability because they simply don't understand the regulations and if so what do you think could or should be done about that and do you even agree that the culpability should be lower because you basically just said you actually said sorry i think it should be at a higher level well i've got a duty to in those cases i was prosecuting and i've got a duty to argue the prosecution's case um but but i i had to agree with the judge that this was a case where the defendant didn't know any better uh, and therefore um that's the, the the health and safety guidelines which judges refer to now in assessing culpability um they state simply that that if there's a blatant disregard and putting uh, people's uh, putting profit ahead of risk um is going to be high uh, but if it's a situation where should have known better but didn't know any better is going to be medium um and, and yeah it, it is a concern uh, and it, as far as the risk assessment point these are these are two cases where risk assessment hadn't even been considered you know they, they just hadn't entered their minds to have a risk assessment um and, and as you've just put what concerns me about when there is a decision to risk assess um and risk assessors are dealing with these types of landlords uh, or these types of property owners where there is a complete lack of understanding um the risk assessors are at a significant disadvantage, and I, I think very vulnerable, um, especially given, you know, the, the amounts that they charge for risk assessments. And then they're not given access, for example, to, say, the full set of the premises, uh, to previous notices issued by the fire service, to staffing levels in nursing homes, to, to the way in which the businesses run, etc., And that's my concern, is that they're, they're in a vulnerable situation because the responsible person as soon as the fire service get involved, we'll immediately blame a risk assessor. Well, Warren, thank you for everything you talked us through today. But if people want to find out more about you and about Blackhurst Bud, your solicitor's firm that you run, how can they do so? 
they can connect to me on LinkedIn where I'm, we've got a, a fire safety law uh, group and um, there's the fire safety law website. And, uh, and of course, I'm at Blackhurst Board Solicitors. Brilliant, Warren. Thanks for your time. We'll, we'll see you in the next episode. Thank you, Mark. Thanks as always to Warren, who's uh, a great person to have as a recurring guest and great fun to chat to. So we're going to return to the news now, Brian, and you really are in a hot seat today. It's a bit of a role reversal because I believe you're actually sat in my office chair. So uh, how are you feeling sitting in the CEO's chair today? Um, am I going to be disciplined? Am I, uh, am I doing all right? You're doing absolutely fine, Mark. I've had to rearrange some of the desk to fit my laptop, but apart from that, it's absolutely fine. That's a very polite way of saying my desk is unbelievably messy, uh, which would be accurate. <laughs> so, Brian, what is the next news story you've got for us? Here's another strong one, Mark. It's about Sadiq Khan this time, the Mayor of London. He's called on building owners and landlords to help leaseholders by sharing vital building safety information with their residents. More than four years after the Grenfell Tower fire, thousands of Londoners are trapped by the building safety crisis. Some leaseholders have been left fearing for their safety, while others have been unable to sell their homes. This has been in the national news, of course. Some are also facing substantial bills to remediate cladding issues they could not have anticipated when they bought their properties. The mayor has continuously pressed government ministers to prevent leaseholders paying simply to make their homes safe and has lobbied for a levy on major developers to help fund remediation costs, which would raise at least £3 billion in Khan's eyes. Khan is now calling on the government to commit to fully funding non-cladding remediation works, such as the installation of effective sprinklers, where the absence of these systems poses a fire risk. There's so far been no commitment from the government on non-cladding remediation funds for any building, despite the sector flagging its fears that these issues will present significant costs at some point in the future. Also, Mark, the Mayor frequently hears concerns that residents are often kept in the dark about the safety of their homes. Leaseholders have pointed to challenges in accessing the basic fire safety information contained in building fire risk assessments, with some going as far as to admit freedom of information requests to their landlord in order to access information about the safety of the building in which they reside. Although the Building Safety Bill introduced a statutory responsibility for building owners and landlords to share fire safety information, the Mayor fears that implementation will take too long for flat owners who are already struggling to access the information. Khan also believes strongly that voluntary disclosure is the fastest route to improve transparency and safety, as well as to rebuild trust between leaseholders and the property industry. The recent Leaseholders Together rally in London saw the End Our Cladding Scandal campaign join forces with the National Leasehold Campaign and the charity Leasehold Knowledge Partnership to draw attention to the issues faced by the country's 4.6 million leaseholders mark, among them building safety, cladding, ground rents, service charges and insurance hikes. Now, Khan's last statement on this matter is as follows. More than four years on from the Grenfell Tower fire, the events of that terrible night continue to cast a long shadow over the lives of thousands of Londoners whose faith in the safety and security of their home has been stripped away. The current building safety situation is a scandal and a crisis. It appears that the government is still not willing to properly address it. He also concluded, we simply cannot go on like this. Building owners must act now to rebuild trust with leaseholders. This can only be achieved through communication and transparency, accompanied by robust changes to the building safety regulatory system. So what are your thoughts on this one, Mark? Well, it's not like the Mayor of London to have a a gripe with our conservative government is it brian you know you, you shock me with this news story um it's, it's it's much as i would have great fun in uh 
smoking holes both at the government and Sadiq Khan. I'm actually going to give a more uh, interesting point of view than my own. Um, I want to share some views of some 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 other groups to do with this. So Dave Richards of the London Cladding Action Group commented, the building safety crisis has blighted the lives of thousands of Londoners. It's financially ruining people across our city. We're pleased the Mayor of London is standing with leaseholders and pressing the government to end our cladding scandal. At the heart of the scandal is a lack of trust in the property industry. The Mayor is right. So then there's also a comment um, from the Leasehold Knowledge Partnership. Um, and they told FSM it was Sebastian Kelly, who's the CEO of that group, said, we're delighted that Sadiq Khan is again sharing his support for leaseholders after first joining the cladding demonstration in February last year and then making his decisive innovation last year to boost shared ownership leases up to 999 years. Uh, Kelly went on to say, there are more flats in London than anywhere else in the UK and they're a mess. Leaving aside the limitless Cheating by commercial interests over leaseholds, tens of thousands of ordinary families face ruin with building safety costs, while we're still nowhere near resolving this crisis, more than four years after Grenfell. We will be in the same position in four years' time unless the government takes decisive action to put right badly built blocks and tries to recruit what it can from those that construct these flawed structures. I mean... Is it a surprise that um, the Mayor of London's getting support for that? No, of course it's not. Um, you know, I think everybody has a right to live in a building that's that's safe and up to the relevant uh, fire safety standards or structural standards. And I think that is what the Mayor of London here is, is truly to campaign for and wants to put the cost back on the developers rather than the, the residents. So it's completely understandable, Brian, to be quite frank. So... Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's another big story. Um, but I want to move on to our final news story of the day now, um, which is one that I'm actually, you know, personally very, very sad about and got a personal investment in. And, and that is the announcement that Stephen Adams has um, departed as the CEO of BAFE. So BAFE announced that after 12 years, um, Stephen Adams, who is later served as the CEO and director of Firequal, has stepped down for the business with effect from the 7th of September. Now, I know Stephen really well, and I'll I'll come back on to, to him, and he's been a guest on this podcast before, but I just want to give you a little bit more information about Stephen if you're not familiar with him. Stephen Adams joined BAFE in 2009 and oversaw the move into its current offices within the Fire Service College in Morton and Marsh. Ever since then, um, Stephen Adams has been central to the development of the business and the huge amount of respect it's garnered within the UK fire market. Uh, furthermore, Adams has been at the heart of the excellent BAFE team that's there and industry stakeholders in the development of many new BAFE schemes and initiatives, most notably was the expansion of the SP203 scheme into emergency lighting and the SP205 fire risk assessment scheme and the new BAFE SP206 scheme for kitchen fire protections. And in tandem, he's helped to ensure that the original BAFE schemes such as SP101 uh, which focuses on the competency of portable fire extinguisher organisations and technicians, has developed and continues to support the growth and competence in the markets. So it, it's been a busy last year for BAFE and, and Stephen, obviously, with the launch of um, BAFE Firequal, um, which is obviously the specialist awarding body now for the fire protection industry. And they they managed to acquire that from the Fire Industry Association. So... That that's some of Stephen's background as well. He's been he's been around for a long time. He probably won't appreciate me saying that if he's listening to this. 
I know you and I both spoke to Stephen the day that this this news broke and and had some really nice private conversations with him. But I don't want this to be private. Stephen has been an unbelievable joy to work with. He is a great guy. Um, he's so passionate about the fire sector. He's dedicated so much of his career to the betterment of this sector. Uh, I'm truly sad to see him go, but I'm excited to see what's next for him. I've obviously worked in the same building as Stephen because I did used to work back at the Fire Protection Association on the Fire Service College in Morton in Marsh. And, you know, I'd see Stephen most days. And Stephen is direct. He can be blunt, but he's definitely honest and hardworking and conscientious and just a thoroughly pleasant person to be around and someone you can learn so much from. And he was unbelievably supportive of me personally too, which is, um, you know, means a lot to me. When I decided to leave the Fire Protection Association, I spoke to Stephen about the opportunity to come to what was then Western Business Exhibitions and to launch and be the first editor of Fire Safety Matters magazine and to launch the fire safety event. And he absolutely backed me. He said it would be a good career move for me. He said it would um, be something that BAFE would look to support in terms of the magazine and the events. And he was a man of his word. He absolutely did just that. And I could not have launched this publication without the support of people like Stephen Adams. It just literally couldn't have been done. And from the second we launched this magazine, it went straight into the largest magazine in the sector not just in terms of circulation and readership which i'm very grateful to all of you listening and read the magazine for making that happen um but just from a from a financial turnover point of view there's there's, there's been nothing like it in the sector and we've set record after record and i'm unbelievably proud of that and you know we're trying to take the magazine into an even further uh, improvement and directions now and you know we've got the best editor that we could have in in you brian here but it stems from our roots as a magazine stem from the support of people like Stephen Adams. It's just a fact. I can't stress my gratitude to him enough. Um, I will miss him and I hope that he pops up somewhere in the sector sometime soon. But he's dedicated so much of his career to this, did a great job at BAFE. I know his staff are very, very fond of him as well. And I just want to pay you know, testament to what a great job that he's done there and to thank him very publicly for all the support they sent me. It's helped change my life. Obviously, I didn't expect when I came here to then go on to do a management buyout and be CEO and co-owner of this company um, and this publication. Uh, Life-changing for me. And I couldn't have been there without people like Stephen. So, Stephen, uh, I hope you hear this. And uh, thank you, my friend, for all the support that you've uh, shown us over the years. And I wish you all the best, my friend. Uh, Brian, I don't know if there's anything else you want to add. There absolutely is, Mark. I can echo your words, first of all. I, mean, I have the utmost respect for Stephen. Aside from being one of the nicest people you ever meet, in my view, he's done a tremendous job at BAFE as indeed he did for the British Security Industry Association, which is where I first knew him. I well remember visiting Stephen when he just moved to BAFE and was based at Morton in Marsh, as you mentioned, Mark. We chatted for several hours on that occasion about the fire industry. It was a great education process for me, as I'm sure you can imagine. Um, I'd personally like to thank Stephen, wish him all the very best for his future endeavours. He leaves a tremendous legacy, Mark. I think that's fair to say, not least the fact that the core BAFE subject of competency is now front and centre in the industry's thinking. Thank you for everything you've done for the industry and the readers of Fire Safety Matters, Stephen. 
Yeah, I think you put it a lot more succinctly than than, <laughs> than I did. So, I mean, that that's a good roundup of the news that we've had um, over the last month. So, Brian, I think it's time for you to introduce our next guest on this episode of the podcast. Who have you got for us? Back in late April, Steve Davis was appointed CEO at the Association for Specialist Fire Protection, officially taking the reins at the organisation's AGM and succeeding Niall Rowan. A chartered mechanical engineer, Davis has brought a wealth of experience in senior leadership to the role, in addition to both technical and operational skills forged across a range of industry sectors. Recently, I chatted with Steve about his core goals for the organisation, the launch of the ASFP's e-learning platform, and also the current state of play in terms of legislation impacting the fire sector. Steve, you recently became the new CEO of the ASFP. What prompted this move for you and how are you settling into the role? Uh, Well, previously I was the chief executive of the Lighting Industry Association in in that role for just over seven years. It sort of came to a bit of a natural conclusion. We'd done building a new laboratory and a new academy. So I started looking for another challenge. Um, And I've actually about 14 years experience running trade associations and membership organisations. So that was really my expertise if you like in looking for the next challenge asfp came across my desk um it fitted into my my background i have a technical background i'm a chartered engineer mechanical engineer um and it looked like an interesting industry to get involved in not least because of of a lot of uh, stuff in the media at the moment so I, i expressed an interest and really the recruitment process started from there um i was made to feel very welcome and enjoyed the uh, rather unusually if you like the recruitment process itself with with Chris from UL as the the new chair Um, and we came to some sort of agreement and and settled in so it's been just over five months now since I started Um, really enjoying the challenge of a new industry it's um, not only getting involved with a a new organization but an industry to learn about as well Um, and that's that does bring its own challenges but it is it keeps uh, me on my toes Um, Getting to grips with actually what is the potential of ASFP, I'm really enjoying. Uh, the bit that has surprised me, having worked in other trade associations, is the level of engagement that we get from our members, the level of, of participation in our webinars and other training uh, activities is quite phenomenal and unusual, I think, for a, a trade association. So really, I'm I'm really enjoying it. I think I've, I've said that a few times, but it's it's brought to me, if you like, and made me realise what the potential is in this industry for the ASFP. There's lots to do. And uh, I say five months in, still loads to plan out and, and look where the next steps are. And what would you say are the top three core goals you would wish to see come to fruition during your tenure as CEO, Steve? Um, well, this, there is actually uh, the structure that I apply to, to trade association development is actually built on three objectives. Uh, it starts first and fundamentally, the reason trade associations exist or, or started out in the first place is usually on the lines of an engagement strategy, looking to bring an industry together to have a common voice or at least a common reason for being uh, to either spread the word of, of best practice or to, to look at influencing either policy level or, or local government uh, and most trade associations, that's that's at the heart. You know, that can range everything from from conferences and seminars through to corporate events to try and get people to talk to each other. So engagement sits at the heart of what uh, the ASFP do. 
Uh, we've just had a, a, con a council meeting uh, that sort of shows how that goes and the planning that we're doing from there. And that's what they're looking for me to do to extend that reach, if you like, of engagement. At the moment, our membership sits across contractors, manufacturers and consultants. Uh, and we're looking to broaden that engagement up and down that construction supply chain, everything from architects and designers through our core membership and then out through uh, building facilities managers and owners. Um, so that engagement is very important. The second area is compliance. Um, this There's a lot to do in the passive fire industry in terms of compliance. It's a difficult industry to regulate. It's a difficult industry to put standards uh, because every installation is different. But compliance is important. And over the recent months, before I, I sort of arrived on the scene at ASFP, they've already introduced re uh, criteria, if you like, for members to become ASFP members. That means they have to have third party certification. Uh, they have to meet minimum training requirements. And actually, it isn't just an association where you pay your subscriptions and, and you get a badge. It takes quite a while to become approved and it certainly takes a lot of effort. So we're, we're not afraid to walk, to sort of reinforce that. I think the bit so far we've not missed is telling the rest of the industry that that's the requirement of every ASFP member. And then the last goal really is around competence. There's a big education piece to be done for the whole construction sector. Um, up and down the supply chain, they need to know what good looks like for passive fire. Um, over the last few weeks, we've spent a lot of time developing a competency framework that sits nicely along what we already offer in terms of level two and level three in passive fire. Um, but there is a void between our introduction course and the level two and three courses. So we're looking to try and bring that framework together, deliver it to different audiences in a way that they'll receive it. So whether it's CPD, whether it's formal qualifications, or whether it's actually sitting in a seminar and taking in information in a, in a format that suits you. There's a lot to do to make that competency agenda in Pacifier more structured and more digestible. Now, the ASFP as an organisation has just unveiled new corporate branding, complete with a very distinctive and refreshed logo. Can you explain the reasoning behind this, Steve? I, I can, yes. It was um, an internal discussion that we looked at here about uh, as you say, entering a new era as ASFP, if uh, if only with a new CEO. Um, I wasn't keen, if I'm honest, on a on a re complete rebrand. We needed here to just look for a refresh. So I, I'd sort of argue it's a subtle refresh. It, it brings us, makes the logo look a little bit more modern. Um, but I think it sits better as well uh, in the way that we put together our publications, the way other our members can use that same logo on their website and on their own materials. Um, so I'm hoping that it's it's give a, if you like, a, a starting point in terms of the way the ASFP is viewed. Um, and the logo is is the bit that, that everyone should start to recognise. So it gave us a start. Uh, still a lot to do to get it out there. But um, but yeah, it was the first step. June marked the fourth anniversary of the Grenfell Tower fire, Steve. And of course, the public inquiry into the tragedy continues at the moment. Why do you feel it's so important to ensure that robust and compliant passive fire protection measures are built into buildings? Well, I mean, the Grenfell tragedy highlighted many things that were wrong with the construction sector. Um, there's really a lot of these uh, issues that have been raised and are continually going through various policies and committees um, were probably hidden uh, from view in terms of, of what was wrong with the building and what was wrong with other buildings as now they've been investigated. And, and the Grenfell uh, 
tragedy really has made the industry give itself a, a really hard look at, at what it does, its practices that it adopts and, and the way buildings are constructed today. Um, the SFP, I think it's fair to say, has been banging the passive fire drum for a long time. Uh, but and recent events have really brought that to the fore. So what we're trying to do here from in the ASFP is to try and give that message across as to, as I say, what good looks like in every installation, whether that's a high rise building or a residential building. You know, there's, there's stuff here to be considered that really isn't exclusive to one building type. So I think there's there's quite a lot more to do. Um, this we are going to keep continue to put pressure on our own members to make sure that that uh, that challenging compliance and competence is met. Um, and we'll continue, if you like, to work with the various committees that we, we have the uh, pleasure of working alongside to influence that agenda. And back in April, Steve, the ASFP launched its e-learning platform. What sort of feedback have you received from learners to date? Yes, the, the e-learning platform. I think um, that one thing that COVID has driven uh, over the last 18 months is a change in people's attitude as to how they receive training. So I don't think it's um, any particular secret. ASFP delivered training courses uh, in a classroom format, just like many other trade associations. Uh, COVID made us have a, a long, hard think and, and look at that, where actually that as a, an activity and, and is a critical income stream for the association dried up very rapidly. So the online uh, learning is something we been considering uh, for quite a long time but this forced a hand to make it happen so when we launched this back in April um, we weren't quite sure how it would be be sort of uh, received it was a big investment for the association in terms of the platform and in terms of making the uh, material digestible across the different platforms and different requirements so having spent the money and uh, invested in the platform uh, actually, I can honestly say it has been actually very well received. We still do get people that would much prefer a classroom environment, and we've started releasing dates now towards the end of this year uh, for people to sit the courses. Uh, but the e-learning platform gives people time to learn at their own pace. We still offer one-to-one -one tutor sessions through uh, through Phil Brownhill, who, uh, who watches the progress of people along the platform, and if he feels they're getting stuck or, or held up, He'll intervene and offer assistance. Uh, the platform is very flexible. Uh, it gives us the opportunity at some stage, if, if we're so inclined, to turn almost all aspects of our training courses uh, into different language formats uh, to deliver into different uh, arenas. So we're really excited about the learning platform and we're looking to expand it as well. Um, that may continue to follow the formal qualification route that we followed at the moment with level two and three and perhaps uh, look to develop into level four, but also some of the CPD offerings that we're developing as well across the other sectors. Um, they will also be delivered on this platform and it allows the tailoring of that uh, tutoring experience to be matched with the, the uh, pupil. So part of the unique part, uh, aspect of this platform is that it looks to see how much progress you're making over a certain period of time. If you're going ahead and racing ahead and answering the questions correctly, then it will adapt that protocol and uh, that syllabus to match the expertise, if you like, of the pupil. Uh, if not, if you're struggling with it and taking your time, it will, it will deliver the whole syllabus and allow people to move at that pace. So it's not the usual e-learning platform where you get a video and a few slides uh, that you wade through over a period of time. 
this is interactive it allows you to uh, ask questions of the, of the material and it allows you to comment in real time that's picked up hopefully uh, by uh, one of our tutors and lastly steve the fire safety bill was recently granted royal assent to become the fire safety act 2021 and the building safety bill has now had its second reading in parliament what are your hopes for both of these pieces of massively important legislation it is it is very important and it is sort of everyone's watching this with uh, uh, with great intrepidation i believe so what we're hoping from it really is that there's some sort of clarity over what is expected of the industry what i'm sort of hoping it will avoid is is using a sledgehammer to crack a nut there are certain aspects of uh, the construction process that are best left to the specialists there are other parts of it the more generalists that I, I believe regulation and said perhaps even third third party certification uh, are much more applicable to so really i'm, I'm looking from this is, is a clarity in in what's expected everything from building managers and designers uh, and what level of competency is is acceptable uh, assuming then that they then allow the industry itself to work out who's best to deliver that, who's best to police it, who's best to, to make sure that the standards are met. Um, I think that's really what I'm hoping for, that it doesn't go too far. I think the difference that we will see is that there are pressures coming to bear on this from different aspects of the industry. So a lot of our members are, are talking to us at the moment about issues about getting insurance cover for work they're doing. Um, you know, the insurance companies will play a vitally important part of what happens next. Um, if a building's uninsurable, uh, then it's not saleable and, and it causes all sorts of problems. So insurance companies alone are looking for some sort of clarity about how the people are trained, how the people are deemed competent to what they do. And aspects such as passive fire protection, you know, are critical to make sure that they feel comfortable in that building being handed over to uh, a facilities manager or, or an end user. guests on this episode are Matt Simpson, Business Development Manager at Simpro Software, and Darren Thorne, the Managing Director at DT Fire Systems. Matt has worked at Job Management Software Specialist Simpro for the last six years, across several roles including Commercial Manager and Key Account Manager. Darren Thorne moved into the MD's role at DT Fire Systems some 15 years ago, having worked as a self-employed fire and security systems engineer for over a decade. During our podcast interview, the duo focus on the benefits to be realised as a direct result of today's businesses opting for digitisation of their workflows and also examine how companies can make that leap of faith. Uh, Matt, exactly how does having job management software like Simpro enable fire and security businesses to centralise their workflows and be more productive? Yeah, so, I mean, the, the how, that the, there's lots of various systems that people use these days, various spreadsheets, paperwork. To make them more productive, the end goal is to try and house it all in one place. Um, so by doing that, you'll have, you'll have less double handling, you can speed up your processes, which inevitably would enable you to have more time for for billable work, which is always the end goal here. We you know we all go to work to make money, so um, having a software in a nutshell will save you time in all that unnecessary admin. 
and then that will just centralise everything and therefore you become more productive. And Darren, how does the software allow your members of staff to work remotely and also document what they do in real time? Well, all our team are able to access everything they need 24-7, 365 days of the year, um, which for me is so important for any business, especially in the fire safety sector. We're paper-free and our on-call engineers can create jobs remotely. We can record data, get signatures, photos live when on site without the need for any communication with our office team. This allows us to work flexible and remotely, but still be super efficient. And for me, I can literally work from anywhere. I have access to all the data in real time, allowing me to keep track of anything from financials, sales information, and day-to-day job schedules and tasks allowing me to be in full control of the business. And back to you now, Matt. Uh, being compliant and accredited is massively important, of course, in the fire and security industries. Do you think having bespoke software to handle enables businesses to be fully confident about compliance management? I mean, yeah, the, the short answer is, is yes. And uh, Darren touched base on it quite a lot. Having a system in place enables you to have that visibility 24-7. So when it's time to to have an audit or to to pull out some form of you know let's say paperwork but it's it's obviously on a software in this example you'll be able to get it quickly so it makes things faster um, it makes things easier and you can put various pieces in place to ensure that various checks various bits of paperwork has been done to make sure that you are compliant And Darren, back to you now. What benefits have your employees and customers realised as a result of digitisation for your business and your workflows? Well, uh, it's really allowed us to be very organised and it's removed those convoluted processes, which has increased our overall efficiency within our business. And it's common that we're asked to provide backup documentation for our clients that are about to be internally audited. And it's really having a system like this allows us to, um, you know, to, to access what they need um, very quickly, um, having a smart and digital system. And for us, for us, it's really simple to provide this information. We can search the site and customer and then download all the documents they need, then directly email them or even give them access to a customer portal, which gives them confidence that everything they need is available. The detail and the reports we provide and the speed we produce them really help our customers satisfy the auditors' need and much more. And Matt, how does a business know what software to choose in order to achieve their goals if they're looking at a digitalization process? Yeah, I think they need to dedicate time. Um, I'm sure Darren did way back when before choosing Simpro, but th- th- there are lots out there. So I think the key goals here is to understand your business. So, you know, where do things go well? Where do things maybe go, are going wrong? But also another key um, goal is to make sure that the software that you choose is future proof. So not necessarily understanding the issues that you're facing today. It's understanding where you want your business to be in 12 months, 24 months time to make sure that that, that software that you look for accommodates that. And Darren, how does software help you in terms of audit procedures and also maintaining your company accreditations going forward? Yeah, for, for, for me um, and the business, it was high, high of importance to show that quality. And being accredited for the services we offer was hugely important to ensure, you know, we as a business were following those required legislation and guidelines uh, to 
to add to this, having a digital system really offers you that end-to-end -end workflow um, and helps those processes within the business, which allow you to really excel and offer what your auditors and the business need in a single system. It gives us and them time and with very little pref preparation involved. Um, and this really gives us the confidence to demonstrate all our compliance needs all within a single system which shows both quality and that transparency. And Matt, a final question for yourself now. It's a big change for any business to use modern technology and revise their operating platform. What options are there when it comes to support and help with such a transition? Uh, yes, it is a big change. Um, I think when you're looking for a new system, you need to make sure that whichever company you're looking at provides that service to help with the transition. Um, whether they have implementation teams, whether you have support, account management, you know, what time zones are they in, what help guides, what learning videos do they provide? Because, you know, just to reiterate, it, it is a big change in your business and that support needs to play a big part in it, not just selling a bit of software. There needs to be some form of backup to enable that the software gets embedded in your company correctly. And lastly, Darren, what benefits have you seen from having a digital system and what advice would you give to others who are looking to change their method of operation? Yeah, of course. So, so honestly, Brian, my opinion is, um, you know, what are you, what are you, what are you waiting for? You know, the benefits of going digital just make this decision sort of easy for me. Um, and having experienced that implementation process, um, you know, Matt will back me up on this, you know, five years ago, it's, it's transformed our business and processes. Mm. Before we were working on paper, relying on remembering that information in our heads and, you know, things were getting forgotten and lost. And by simply having a digital system, it gives you that single place to offload the information out of your head. It allows everyone within the business to have control. You know, people are on uh, not available or they're, they're on annual leave. You, you still have that information uh, available to you, you know, and it's uh, so important in the fire sector. You know, it's critical for me that it protects us, the business, our employees and our clients, and, and they rely on, they're, they're relying on us in educating them and also giving them the support they deserved, which is so much easier by using a digital software. us to the end of this latest edition of the Fire Safety Matters podcast. Many thanks indeed to Steve Davis at the ASFP, Matt Simpson from Simpro Software, Darren Thorne of DT Fire Systems and also Warren Spencer of Blackhurst Buds Listers for their excellent contributions. You can read more on the issues raised here and others by visiting the Fire Safety Matters website at www.fsmatters.com. We do hope you've enjoyed the content and found it informative. Please do contact us if there are any particular themes or issues you would like us to explore on upcoming broadcasts. You can do so on Twitter by using the hashtag FSMPodcast. On that note, do make sure you follow us on Twitter at FSMatters underscore MAG and also access our LinkedIn page at Fire Safety Matters magazine and website. Please do like and share the content of our regular podcasts and spread the word among your industry colleagues. You can listen to the Fire Safety Matters podcast for free on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube or Podbean. All you need to do is enter the term Fire Safety Matters into your chosen platform search box. We'll see you next time. <laughs>